the <coughs> theme for the evening talk is of gods and humans. We are in India. It's the, it's the land of the gods. It's been the land of the gods for thousands of years. It isn't necessarily easy for us, those of us here who have not been brought up into the culture, and often, if, even if one has, to have some sense of what it is to be living in the land of the gods and humans. I just, I want to, uh, you have to bear with me for a while, touch uh, upon this. But before I, I do, rather loose connection, but some. Um, a few weeks ago, a friend and I went to see a French film. I have a great love of uh, uh, European cinema and uh, and a bit of Bollywood as well. And the film, the French film, was called Of Gods and Men. The film is set in Algeria in the mid-1990s when there was much uh, uh, conflict and a small group of uh, uh, Catholic monks were based in a rather remote monastery, tiny monastery outside a village in Algeria. And their lives were under great threat, either from jihadists, Islamic terrorists in another language, or from uh, the Algerian military due to the uh, colonialization or the history that had gone along. So these monks, six or seven of them, on what the film focuses is on their relationship to their existence and what matters. And what was, I found as watching the film and as an ex-Buddhist monk, what was gripping for it were, to me was the authenticity of the dialogue about what it is to be human. And the script was coming from a great deal of reflection and insight into the human condition. And there were some points in this film, as an example, some of the monks understandably said, the situation is too threatening, we should leave, we should get out of here. And others said, we are monks, we have already given up our life. We've let it go a long time ago. We have nowhere to go. And the dialogue goes on between them and all the uh, pressures and the terror uh, take, taking place uh, around. And sometimes, I use this uh, cinema, in a way can pinpoint to you and to me, and just as uh, Zohar mentioned to us a few minutes ago, what really matters, and, and where do we stand? Where do we stand on, on, on matters of life, on matters of self and survival, 
on matters of letting go. Where do, where, where do we stand? Uh, and there's a certain kind of ethic. This ethic is rather significant in the world, I'm calling it the land, but the world of gods and humans. And you and I have to make, it's not a big one actually, to get an appreciation of this, a shift in the thinking or, or a shift in the feeling and the view. And that does genuinely happen to some people who spend quite a lot of time in this country. You get a feeling for it. The usual view, the rather concrete material view is that the world, this planet, is as far as sentient life goes only inhabited by human beings animals and uh, other creatures in the air and the water. This is, this is the common shared view. But it's a view, the important point here, from the perspective of the physical. I see a human being, I see an animal, I see a bird, I see an insect. So in that view from the eye level, then you, we live in the world of that. That's the concrete material world. But in the world of the Buddha, and in the world of gods and humans, the world is a psychology. The reference point is not the physical, it's the psychology. And in the psychology of existence, which the material obviously has a place, there are humans, there are angels, and you and I have the privilege of meeting some, and some are in the hall and else, elsewhere, there are devils, there are gods, there are uh, uh, hu hu um, uh, uh, forces at work which push and pull the mind at work and generate in all sorts of uh, ways. And we live in a world of gods and angels and, and uh, devils and azuras and humans and animals hungry ghosts, and etc., and hells and heavens, because the world in ancient India, in the world of the Buddha, in the world of exploration, is Nama Rupa. Nama means the world of psychology as much as it is the world of physicality. So when the Buddha says, I speak to gods and humans, he means it. An incident took place Sometimes these incidences of life resonate, may not touch you at all, but it resonated with Christopher. Pre-Buddha now, I think two and a half thousand, three thousand years ago. And in the world of the gods, the gods were seen as all-powerful. And the gods were often expressed as the elements. And this has certain parallels in our society, which I you know, want to kind of open our consciousness out, the intention behind the discourse. <clears throat> and so people worshipped, paid great respect to Agni, the god of fire. Where would we be without fire? From the sun, to the lighting of the fire, to the making of things, to heat and warmth. So people worshipped Agni, the god of fire. 
people worship the air element, Vayu, the wind and the, and the, the breath and all that air makes possible for sentient life, etc. So there's a great worship of that. There's great worship of Brahma, God the Creator, God who created heaven and earth, of Vishnu who sustained it, of Shiva when everything comes to an end. So sometimes there was one God with all of these different powers and forces, and sometimes it was the world of the gods in the separate names. So people worship the God, devoted to God. Not to be underestimated, because much of our planet is still has a devotional, worshipful re relationship to God. In all the different phases, aspects that are there. Some of you may well as. Then there was a small incident. Uh, in the history of the human being's relationship to the gods. And the small incident was, one of the sages, one of the contemplatives, meditators, <coughs> picked up um, a leaf. And he said to Agnew, you are so powerful, the fire element, the heat element, you are so powerful, burn this single leaf, no others around, just burn this leaf. You're so powerful, you can burn anything, right now burn this leaf. And God Agni couldn't do it. He couldn't pick out the leaf and do it. So he turned to Vayu. Lord Vayu, God Vayu, the God of the air, you just Breathe on it, and this single leaf will blow up and go in the air. Just move on, just whoosh. and Agni couldn't do it. So then the sage went to the even more powerful God, God the creator of heaven and earth, called Brahma. It's the Judo Christian God, it's the God of many religions. And he said, you are so, you are the creator. You can create anything. Plant the seed right next to this leaf that will make it grow and produce a leaf identical to this one here. You, you can do it. You're God the creator. You can do anything. You, can, you created heaven and hell. Now create this. And Brahma couldn't do it. And he, then he went, went to Vishnu, the sustainer. Vishnu, you sustain everything. Sustain this leaf. Nothing else. So it never changes. It's always there. You're the sustainer. You can sustain anything. You can sustain that leaf. Vishnu could do it. Turn to Shiva. Destroy the leaf. Finish with it. Right now. Leave the other ones. Just take it. Finish with it. Only your leaf. Shiva couldn't do it. The one god couldn't do it. The many gods couldn't do it. And the sage turned and said, God is not all-powerful. God can't do it. And then he said, I don't know if they had boxes of matches 3,000 years ago. 
and he went pew, and he got a spark and he burnt the leaf. Oh! He took the leaf, he went to the leaf and went whew, and blew it away. Took a seed and planted a seed so a tree could grow of the same leaf as that. In one gesture, God was disempowered. God could not do what the human being asked. It was not an all-powerful God. And the sages looked and said, Wow, why are we worshipping a God who is not all-powerful? Because God can't do this. can't burn this leaf, he can't blow it away, and can't put a seed right now and make a new one. That, recorded in the old text, this story, <clears throat> that event did something extraordinary in the psyche. It shifted the responsibility to humans. It changed the event. And human beings had a power which the gods didn't have. The gods didn't like it. They had been seen through. The disempowerment took place. Human beings are remarkable. Sometimes, in the, in the, in the world of gods and humans, the Buddha focuses on this very beautifully, I must say. Many lovely, lovely passages. And great, some of the best takes of these texts say. Sometimes a human being, you and I have the privilege sometimes, I had a great privilege in different parts of the world, including here, that sometimes we kind of, we meet with human beings, who in my eyes, and maybe yours too, are such remarkable human beings, they are gods for us. The Buddha said, for children, the loving mother and father are the gods of children. They're the first two gods. A loving mother and father are the first two gods for children. And sometimes we enter and we meet the gods. Gods and humans. And it's important because in the contact with the gods, something nourishes us. And you and I sometimes just kind of casually, informally, or formally, or whatever, enter into the social environment in which there is an appreciation of gods and humans and animals <coughs> and uh, uh, angels and devas and azuras. Sometimes we meet because we see the world as psychology as much as we see it as matter. And you and I, I know my life, I'm sure you too, sometimes we are touched with human beings and when we're touched rather and when a person or person really touches us the gods have spoken. The psychology has nothing to do with name and form and shape. The gods have spoken. In this dialectic of gods and humans, of the psychology of life, there's a very important thread, and I have to say, all credit to the Indian tradition that recognizes this, and all credit to the tradition which says the gods are finite. 
The gods are not all-powerful. They're not all-knowing. They have their limitations. Even though they appear powerful, the wind, the air appears. Wow, look at it. The fire appears. The forces of creation, what sustains life, what ends life. Wow. But, can't even blow a leaf. The Buddha, whether he knew this story or whether he doesn't, not so important. But one thing is for sure, the disempowerment of the gods, those I just referred to in that way, was simultaneously the empowerment of the human being. What is the potential of the human being? And in the potential of the human being, it meant, and it was a, this, it still is a significant shift. It meant a real shift in where responsibility lies. And in that movement and shift away from giving responsibility to the other, with the big O, that might go with it, it then moves it very much to us, to you and me. What's our relationship to life? Am I mature, and it takes maturity for us, to have a sense of being able to take responsibility for what happens. And that is one enormous challenge. And when we can't, there tends to be, and, and if you, I look at myself, you look at yourself, <clears throat> pretty well four options which are available. An event happens to us, and it may be a beautiful one or a painful one, but something touches, or touches. It could be physical, it could be emotional, it could be spiritual, it could be consciousness, it could be thought, it could be realizations, it could be up or down, whatever. Something, boom, it really has some impact on us, beautiful and ugly. And it won't be at all surprising that in the impact of something happening to us, because it has an impact, it will stimulate some thought or reflection on it. So something has an impact, and it triggers the thinking about. And in the thinking about, there are essentially for human beings, if you think of some more, please let me know tomorrow, but if you... Four primary options. When the thought is, what caused this? Why did this happen to me? And one will be, when it must be coming from myself. Something happened and it's just come out of me. Whatever. And that would be a common view. It's just come out of me. I'm talking beautiful, ugly, appreciated, not wanted, just, just come out. Something about me, something was in me, something needed to come up, something needed to come out. It was from me, it was caused by me, made by me, and this has happened. Sometimes, remember, beautiful and ugly, welcome and unwelcome, it's the other. The other. I went to see this 
what would be popular in India? Ah, the gods, back to the gods. I went to see this amazing, wonderful guru. And she or he touched me so much. She or he has had such an impact upon my life. And through her or his words, or through their eyes, the Darshan event. Through their touch, putting their hands on their head, whatever it might be. Through their presence, that's a lovely big word, isn't it? Through their presence. Not a year presence, you know. You know. Let's have a... This caused me to really change. So it wasn't really me, but him or her or them caused something really big to happen in my life. Beautiful, just very common view. Religion depends rather strongly on this view, of course. Jesus saved me, boy. Apologies to Jesus. And sometimes it, it's very painful. You've done this to me. You've really hurt me. What you said has caused me so much suffering. You've really made my life miserable. You've been really horrible to me. So the other is the cause of how I am. The opposite view. Sometimes you say, oh, no, 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 not like that. It's the combination. It's a bit about me, and it's a bit about you. I must have been extremely receptive to your vibes. I'm in a new age talk. And so it was just a, we just met, and we uh, connected, and we and we were ready for each other. Lovers, and gurus, and disciples, and friendships, meeting points. And we, but we say, I'm not you know, uh, too much concerned, but say, ah, just at that time, the two of us met. And in that meeting, something lovely happened, because it was something about the two of us, or <coughs> the group of us, whatever. Self, other, both. In comes the fourth one. No, no. Nothing to do. The, the Buddha explored all, all of this. I'm just uh, sharing the voice. No, nothing to do with me. Nothing to do with you. Nothing really to do with both of us. It just happened. It was popular in some circles. It was grace. It was just grace that this happened. I've never met her, but anyway, just grace. It was just, another one, popular, destiny. It was the destiny for this to happen. Nothing to do with you, just destiny. It was fate. Another popular one would be karma. It's our karma. What's another one? Ah, very popular one. God's will. Marvellous, we know God's will. God's will. So sometimes, don't say self, don't say other, don't say both. We say, no, no, not that. Something else. And in, to repeat, in the impact of events upon our life, when the view arises about what was that or is that about, self, other, both or neither, will often be where we attribute 
causes two. If you've got a fifth, on to you. And that, and then, coming back to, to earlier, the sense of responsibility with, uh, uh, with all of this. Uh, Dharma of the Buddha, which you know, started here in the, in the village, is a wonderful, I would say, if I may say, kind of endorsement of our humanity, of what it is to be human and to explore the full, uh, shall we say, psychology of life. And even our beloved scientists tell us <coughs> the universe only consists of 4% of matter. 4%. Sadly, far too many people think the world consists of 96, 98, 99% matter. Consumerism, materialism, having and owning stuff. And if we just got it right, and we just said, no, no, material world is 4%. Okay, we'll be generous. 10%. We'll give 10% to the material world, you know, clothes, you know, food to eat, basic necessities. 10% of our attention. That's two and a half times the actual. It's only 4%, but we're going to be very generous. We give it 10%. So we give 10% to the material world. So then we've got 90% left for the non-material world. Oh, have we got it the wrong way round? If we have, tragic. Another story. The power of the inner life here. Buddha is rather a, Buddha is rather a, is, you know, a tough guy, I have to say. No sloughing around with wishy-washy teachings. A few hundred years later, it's the same theme uh, again, a few hundred years later, Arjuna, some of you know Arjuna, I mean, not personally, but you, know. <laughs> you might do it, uh, has this conversation, very famous conversation, with Krishna. Krishna is God, that's Krishna. And Arjuna says, more or less, I can't fight this bloody battle. Bhagavad Gita. I can't fight this battle with the others. And Krishna says to him, why can't you find the He said, the others, it's actually part of the family. We're warring over this land and the Pandavas and... Does anybody remember the other tribe? Anyway. Kurus. Kurus? Huh? All right. Gurus and the Pandavas are engaged in the conflict. And I know the beloved Mahatma put a warm gloss over the story, but I want to put it in another way. And he said, I can't fight, I can't kill other people. I can't do it. I mean, they're kith and kin, they're friends, they're family, I know them, but with just this conflict between the families have started. And Krishna says to Arjuna, Sabhava dharma. Sabhava dharma is uh, 
You must do your dharma. You must do your duty. And you must do your duty because you are Shastriya. You are the warrior class. In that caste. You should take notice of this because it's about you and my life here. It's not a wishy-washy story. And in the tradition, just to get the feeling of the Indian thinking because it's important to know it well, the gods looked at the human being, the gods of the psychology, remember, looked at the human being and said, there are four kinds of human beings. And the Purusha, the person, that's you and that's me and that's us, are in four areas and the body is the confirmation of it. So the Brahmins were basically from the neck up. They were those who had knowledge, Vedic knowledge. They were those who were the masters of uh, thinking, those who created the rituals and the ceremonies, those who formed the dominant pundits, the culture view, the priests, they were the priests, they ran things. They had access to the gods. The next went down the body to the arms. And the arms were the warriors. In English we say the call to arms. And quite a few of our countries are still, and it's obscene, engaged in the call to arms. We have, still have the warrior class murdering and killing men, women and children for some bizarre, obscene ideology of the nation state. And therefore, there's, you go down the body to the warrior class, the military class, the killing class. And you went down the body a bit further. Then they said, then you come to the stomach, this area. The farming class. Who put the food in the stomach. Those who work the land, the clothing, the merchant class. And then you went further down the body to the feet the fourth of the fourth caste. I mean, this is to me it's wretched thinking, I have to say. Down and they and those were the workers, the lowest. They were at the bottom. They cleaned the shit out of the toilets. They swept the roads. They were the slaves. They were the servants. They were the nobodies. And they based it on this perception of Purusha, of the human being looked in this particularly gross way and the consequence of that India was divided up and still is divided up no matter what they tell you into the forecasts and as the, as the Buddha said and said it with strong determination a number of times one is not made noble by birth I tried to break out of this wretched horrible caste system and the, and the class system that we have in Britain. Still the same monster. <coughs> and therefore, in ignoring the Vedas, which is the will of the gods, so to speak, the view of human beings in these boxes, which many of us break out of, uh, the Buddha dispensed with that and looked at human beings as human beings not as figures in a caste. And with Arjuna, there's much, I have to say, much I love with the Gita, but boy has he got a weak spot in it. 
oh God, has he got a weak spot? And the weak spot is, Arjuna says, very understandably, I don't want to kill others. He says to Krishna, he says to them, no, I don't want to kill people. And he said, I would rather die first so that the killing doesn't take place so that they can live. I don't want to kill them. And Krishna sweeps away this view, which is a kind of you know, a caring kind of view. And he says to you must do your duty. And Arjuna says, there is Shastriya, that means a warrior, military class. He says, I just can't do it. And I don't want the consequences of what I do. And Krishna then turns to Arjuna and he says, then you surrender to me. You do your duty, but you surrender to me. I will take the full responsibility for what you do. I am God. And therefore you have no responsibility for it because if you kill them, they will be reborn and reincarnated. Or you can't kill them because their atma, their self, is eternal. It makes no difference either way, this is what Krishna tells Arjuna. So Arjuna can go into war. Whoa. Would the Buddha buy that one? Not a chance. Never. And there are still many in the military class and their supporters in all who are still giving support to the killing machine. Uh, and they say, I've surrendered to Allah, Yahweh, God, Krishna, or whatever, whatever it might be, and I'm doing my duty. The terrible, this world and religion and suffering is terrible because it's unexamined questioning. We, you, me, women and men on this earth, have to, as I say, explore, and therefore, not an easy question for us to explore. What is the ethic that really matters? If I'm not going to transfer responsibility to a deity, to something divine, I'm not going to keep dumping it on other people for events. Then that's going to, myself as a human being walking and breathing the earth, I have to find, dig rather deep to find the ethic. And that uh, uh, ethic is in the Dharma of the Buddha one of the, um, shall we say, foundation principles. It can't be skipped over. It has to be brought, in, brought into human discourse. And therefore the idea, we'll touch upon it in one of my groups in a few days' time, the idea of surrender, which is a popular idea, which I hear quite regularly in these... Uh, uh, shall we say, lovely circles of surrender could be an act of utter irresponsibility. It could be. And therefore the inquiry into the human uh, uh, condition, freeing ourselves from class and caste, and from imprisonment in those boxes, which is the sad fate of many, many 
many people, but I could tell you many stories of how that affects people's lives here. But in freeing ourselves from that, may give some inner space and love and connection for a different kind of psychology. And we want to reflect on that and consider that. And what is an ethic? What, is, what, is, what, what does an ethic mean for us? And what, what is the relationship of me to you and you to you and us to us? What is the relationship with the consideration of the ethic? And it's terribly easy, terribly easy, when you and I are feeling good. Oh, it's so nice to be ethical. Oh, my goodness. We can have wonderful experiences of oneness. Now, I'm a Dharma teacher. I, I, I hear them on the daily basis. Uh, we can have wonderful experiences and they are important and valuable they may not test the ethic it's usually under the pressure it's usually in the intensity of an entangled and problematic situation when there might be some vulnerability to the violence and the anger. When there's some heat going on inside of us to the, in reactivity. Could be to our, towards ourselves. You know, we can be extremely destructive towards ourselves, suicidal towards ourselves, as well as to the outer. And it's in those times and the intensity of them the finding of the ethic is extremely challenging and difficult. And that um, dynamic and uh, exploration of the finding of the ethic is one of the important platforms. I've been reading, I mean, this is a bit related, but I've been reading in the uh, newspapers, and you may have done recently. <clears throat> I was speaking uh, with the abbots about this, or the deputy. I have read in newspapers recently that the uh, Indian police did a raid on a monastery, Kamapas. I mean, Kamapas in the Tibetan lineage is big time. And they found in the monastery, in trunks, in the monastery, <coughs> like money, like you can't believe, bucket loads of it. No receipts, according to the information in the newspaper. If it's in the newspaper, it must be true. And um, so they found lakhs and lakhs and lakhs and lakhs of this money lying around. No receipts. Dozens of different currencies. All over the world. No declaration of it. Tibetans, under the law of India, not allowed to own property. 
own land actually, not allowed to own land. Indians must own the land of India. What's all this money doing? Not declared, etc. So the police interviewed, according to the newspapers, Kamapa for over an hour, many others, and etc. I don't know what the facts of the situation is, but the ba basic facts are true or, or whatever. But I do know in listening that when something like that happens, there is a raid, in this case, on a Buddhist monastery, which there is now an ongoing police investigation with lots of money there. It may be, as I used to learn when I was in the Christian world a few lifetimes ago, there may be, it may be what the Christians called the sins of omission rather than the sins of commission. The sins of commission is the deliberate act to accumulate wealth at the expense of others. Indians, whatever. They're just Indians. We need it for Tibetans. And uh, that kind of view of holding back and holding the money, the sins of commission, is a view, I think, which goes along with the view of the undeserving poor. Oh, it's us, for us, for us, for us. And all the wealth that goes with it. It could be the sins of omission. We use that language of sin. Meaning, just stupid. <laughs> no malicious intention. Just gathering up all this money from all these donors. Taiwanese, Hong Kong, Singaporeans, Americans, Swiss, Europeans, Australian dollars, they found that rubies, they found a lot. It could be the sins of omission. They just didn't have it together to give out any receipts. It was piling up. They didn't know what the hell what to do with it. And it's just lying around this monastery, you know. I mean, this is a very benign view. Just lying around the monastery in the trunks. In either case, what's the ethic? What's the relationship where in life, in the smaller things and the bigger things, we find a way that if <coughs> not going to be caught up in the sins of commission or omission, to find a way where the ethic matters, even when it is at some personal cost. And quite often in life, ethics matter, and the keeping of it is when sometimes the moment comes of the ethic is when we're challenged. It's in the moment of being challenged, and whoa, what is the practice? What is the vision and the view that we explore what ethics are? We don't hand them over to others, the gods the powerful, the rich, or whatever. And we explore, say, well, what is the ethic in this situation? And sometimes, when you and I, when we're kind of reactive, we're negative, we're demanding, we're needy, we're oppressive. Maybe somewhere we've lost something, lost some ethic. 
And if we're quite sensitive human beings, when we lose the ethic, if we're sensitive, I find, and perhaps you do too, they kind of, we feel bad about ourselves. It's not only we lost the ethic in that moment or in that time, but if we're going deep with ourselves, we don't feel good about it. And as was pointed out a few minutes ago by one of the teachers, the whole of the Dharma exploration, amongst the many factors, is to find the ethic, to try to live through it and stay true to it. Because as the Buddha said, it saves us from guilt. It saves us from remorse. It saves us from living in regret. It saves us from feeling incredibly sorry about ourselves. For what we said and what we did, or what we didn't say or what we didn't do. <coughs> and that ethic is a liberating force. Human beings have a power for change that the gods don't have. May all beings live with inquiry. May all beings explore the world of gods and angels, devas, all that, and humans, animals. May all beings explore the ethics which releases the wisdom. Let's have a couple of quiet minutes, shall we?